Hey, listen, if you're a guest today, I meant to say this, uh, we would love for you to give us a record of you being with us, first-time guest. I know that uh, God brings us many every Sunday, and so if you'd take a moment and jot down your information, and uh, you can bring this to us in the back. We will, my wife and I usually uh, greet guests, and if you'd bring this to us, uh, we'll give you a copy of a book that I've written on the book of Revelation, at least chapters 2 and 3, and we'd love to give you that gift in exchange for your uh, record of your visit with us today. So that'd be great. Also, in your worship guides, there's some notes if you want to take notes on our message today. Uh, Last week, I was all excited and I wanted to preach all 14 verses, but just absolutely realized that there was just no way I could get through 14 verses. So we got through two (laughs) verses. So today, um, somebody asked, are you going to be able to finish the two witnesses today? And I was like, I hope so, but we will. We'll finish up, and we are currently, for those of you that are guests, again, maybe this is your first time with us, we are studying this great book of Revelation, the book called The Apocalypse. The apocalypsis in Greek literally means to unveil or to reveal. You say, well, what is being unveiled? What is being revealed in these 22 chapters? Well, there are two things. First of all, it is the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, His awesomeness, who He is, His, his kingship, his, his lordship. And so Christ is prominently, He's conspicuously revealed and unveiled for us in this great book. And also, what is revealed or unveiled is the future of the world. You say, well, wait a minute, Nostradamus or this some kind of prophetic? No, no, it's, it's far greater than that. This is the Word of God. And it is absolutely accurate and pure and perfect in everything that it tells us, both past and present and future. And when I read this text to you in a moment, you're going to say, well, I can tell you that. That has not happened. That has certainly not happened in history. I know my history. I have, this has not happened in the current milieu of time. So this must be relegated to a future tense point in time, and you would be absolutely right. And so we're in Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to begin in reading in verse 3, and I'm going to go ahead and read the entire text, at least 3 through 14, and then we'll come back through and study these two, uh, these two witnesses, these two men who are referred to as they give a testimony, they give a martyrian. They will be martyred for their faith. We're going to look at their ministry, we're going to look at their death, we're going to look at their resurrection and their ascension. These are two very powerful, potent, prophetic men of God, and we get to study them today, and we're going to try to ascertain and figure out just who these men are or what do they represent, and so we're going to have a good time studying God's Word today. So in Revelation 11, verse 3, right here in what is known as the Great Tribulation, it says these words. Verse 3, let's roll it to verse 3 on the screen. That's verse 1. And your blood ran red. That's verse four. Let's back up one time. And my sin washed white. There it is. All right, here we go. Y'all ready? And I will give exousian, is the Greek word. It's not dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite, which is just awesome, brute power and strength. Exousian has the connotation of authority, that they have been given this God given authority, this power to do the following. I'm going to give this to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. And they're going to do this for 42 months, three and a half years. That's 1,000. 
260 days, these guys are going to preach from Jerusalem clothed in sackcloth, okay? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. In a few moments, we're going to find out what that means. Have you ever studied the Bible and read it and go, I have no idea what that means? Well, you say, that happens to me a lot in Revelation. Well, John is presupposing that you and I have a very thorough understanding of the Old Testament, which most of us don't. And so we have to go back into the Old Testament. You're going to find there's a verse in Zechariah 4 that is almost verbatim to Revelation 11, 4, what we just read. Now, here's where it gets kind of wild on us. Are you ready? And if anybody wants to harm them, the antecedent for them would be the two witnesses, all right, these two powerful, potent preachers there in Jerusalem. If anybody wants to hurt them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. In other words, don't mess with these prophets of God. Some of you right there are having a hard time. You're going, well, you know, I'm an empiricist. I'm a rationalist. I'm an educated person, uh, Mr. Forshee, and I, I just cannot in the, my wildest imagination see fires. It's not dragons we're talking about, is it? I mean, these are human beings. Listen, I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you. I don't really understand all that that means by that. It just got my attention. How, how can I say that? It, it has my attention. And if God wants to pour out fire through, hey, listen, God created the world out of nothing. He raised His Son from the dead. What's a little fire? Okay, so anyhow, that's what I think about it. These have... Uh, well, watch this. These have exousian. All right, again, there's this divine right of, it's more than just power. It, it is authority. They have authority, these two men do, to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as often as they desire. And when they finish their martyria, it's where we get the English word martyr, martyrdom. And when they finish their testimony, the beast. Now, we're going to be introduced to the Antichrist. This is the first of 36 references to the beast. Uh, the beast is none other than Satan in human form. He is the Antichrist. He is the Second Thessalonians 2 man of lawlessness. He is going to be a very conspicuous, prominent future human being in this great tribulation area. He's going to rise up out of the bottomless pit, the abysmos, and he will make war against these two prophets. He is a powerful individual. He will overcome them, and he will kill those two witnesses. And now it gets kind of gross. I'm just be honest with you. This is gross. This is hard. This is actually hard to read. It reminds me of something you'd read in today's paper in the Middle East, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, the tribes, the tongues, and the nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth, now these are the earth dwellers. Whenever you see these guys, these earth dwellers are usually antagonistic toward the things of God. They are usually the ones following the Antichrist, and they're going to have a hootenanny party. They're just going to think this is the best thing because these two prophets of God, 
these powerful, potent preachers of the Word of God, that they're dead and their bodies are strewn throughout Jerusalem. And they're just, they, the Bible says here, they rejoice over them, they make merry, and they send gifts to one another because these two prophets who bassinos them, tortured them, those who dwell upon the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered into the two prophets. Now, watch this. Have y'all seen anything like this? I haven't. And these two men of God stand to their feet and mega phobos in the Greek. Mega means prodigious, great, large, and phobos, of course, is fear. Great fear fell on everybody who saw them, <laughs> wouldn't you? I mean, they're dead, three days, boom. They rise up and they heard a voice, a loud voice from heaven saying, come on up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city. Now, the city, it's very clear what the city is. It's clearly Jerusalem. Earlier, it was called the city of Sodom and Egypt, spiritually speaking, but where our Lord was crucified, it takes all the ambiguity out of it whatsoever. We know precisely this is the city of Jerusalem. It is the city that is prominently featured. If not every day, then at least once a week, it is the city where the three major world religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all abide, and not so peaceably and amicably, I might add. It is that city, interesting enough, when you look at a map, it looks like it's just right in the middle of the world. It is that very city that's going to be prominently featured in the end times. That doesn't surprise us because it's prominently featured in the present times. But a tenth of that city is going to fall. And in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. This is the second woe, and it is past, John said. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Father, we just pray you'd give us wisdom. Pray that you'd speak to our hearts, Lord, and give us insight into the Word of God. May we understand the Old Testament appropriately. May your Holy Spirit speak to us to understand the New Testament. May we put it together. And may we, God, come away from here today thoroughly, I mean thoroughly blessed and encouraged by the power of God, this same God, you, that we are worshiping today is the God of creation, the God of redemption, and the God of culmination. You're the God who is absolutely enthroned. You are the holy despot, the reigning monarch. You created it all. You own it all. And you have been so gracious and kind to reveal to us how everything is going to transpire. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So these two witnesses, let's look at their lives here for just a moment and their ministries. It says in verse 3, and if, we, if you, what you would like to do is just open up your Bibles and turn to Revelation 3, it's going to be kind of like a homily sermon, which means I'm just going to touch base on every one of these verses and try to give an, an explanation. We'll give some application and some illustration, but primarily today we're going to look at, we're going to look at the clock. It's 11.39. Isn't that wonderful? So um, we're, we're, going to, uh, we're going to go fast, and we're going to begin in verse 3. They're given this power by God to prophesy. Now, whenever you see prophecy in the Bible, you need to take a, think of two things. Write this down, if you, if you will, in your notes or in your Bible. Write the word foretell, F-O-R-E-T-E-L-L, -L, 
They prophesied in verse 3, meaning they foretelled the future, and they forth-tell, F-O-R-T-H. Prophecy encompasses those two dynamics. Yes, it has the idea of telling what is about to happen, but it also involves telling what thus saith the Lord. Now, these two men do both. They're, They're telling them, look, look what has happened these three and a half years during this great tribulation. God has sent us. I believe in the spirit and in the power and the anointing of Elijah and Moses of old. We are here. We are prophesying. We're telling you, listen, this is from the hand of God and other great judgments are coming. You can't stop it. What you need to do is repent of your sin, place your faith in Almighty God, and I'm telling you, He's going to come, He's going to reign, and so they're telling them what is about to happen, and they're doing it with great power. So they combine these two ingredients of prophecy, which means to foretell and to forthtell. And notice what they're wearing as they do it. They're clothed in sackcloth, which always connotes the ideas of mourning, you know, weeping, and humility. These two powerful preachers of the Word of God, they are anointed by God, and they, I'm telling you, they are not holding back. You think I'm strong as goat's breath? You ought to listen to these guys, buddy. I'm telling you, these guys are bringing it, bringing it, and bringing it. And people don't like it, they don't like it, they don't like it, because it's a message of God's judgment. Sackcloth, mourning. They're broken over this message. They're humbled by it. But they've been given the message and they have to share it. Now, here's this strange verse in verse 4. I call it strange because we, we just, it's just different for us. When we read it, and the Bible says these are two olive trees and the, the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now, let's go to Rev, uh, um, Zechariah 4, 14. Let, let me read this text to you. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And it's in, in Zechariah's day, which is a great prophetic minor prophet coming of the, of the great day of the Lord in the future, he is describing Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua. Zerubbabel is the governor, Joshua is the high priest, and he's calling these the two anointed ones who are standing beside the Lord of the earth. And just like Zerubbabel and Joshua were anointed by God, like olive trees producing oil for the lamps to burn, so the, the Spirit and the anointing and the power of God, Zechariah 4, 6, 4, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And the same Holy Spirit of God that enamored and anointed and enabled Zerubbabel and Joshua is the same God who is going to come over and anoint and empower these two witnesses. And that's what this is. That's, it's like John has given us a cue back in the Old Testament how God anointed and empowered. That's what he's about to do with these two men, all right? Now, verse 5, I mentioned it a moment ago, it's startling. I don't know that I understand all of that. I, 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 it certainly could be literal about the fire. Somehow, when people oppose them, they're going to they're going to pay for it. They're going to pay with their lives. So it's almost like God has this bubble around them. And they cannot be penetrated. They cannot be hurt until they have fulfilled uh, their destiny. Now, verse 6 says, they have the power and the authority to stop the rain and cause a drought. Now, let's do a little Old Testament study here. Who are the two men of God in the Old Testament had power to stop the rain and power to bring about 
plagues and uh, so forth. Who are those two men? Well, it's obvious. That would be Elijah and that would be Moses. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus, in a very interesting passage of Scripture, is on a mount, and He is transfigured, metamorphosis. What is on the inside comes on the outside, and there's this radiant Shekinah glory of God engulfing the person of Jesus Christ, and there are two men standing beside Him, and those two men were Elijah and Moses, which makes a lot of people think. I'm not one of them, but a lot of people think that those two men preaching in the end times are Elijah and Moses. Other people say, no, it's not them. I know who it is. It's Enoch and Elijah. Because what do those two men have in common? They never died. They never died a physical death. Enoch walked with God. God took him. Remember that? Elijah was a mighty preacher prophet, and a chariot of fire swept him away, and he, he ascended into heaven. So some people believe that these two men who have the power like Elijah did of old, in fact, Jesus said in Luke 4, 25, watch this, Jesus said about Elijah of old, Luke 4, 25, but I tell you truly, uh, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now this is Jesus speaking, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. That was under the ministry and the auspices of Elijah. This, one of these preacher dudes, come on now, one of these prophets of God in Jerusalem, if you take it literally, and I do, is going to stand there and he's going to be preaching and he has the power of God to shut up the heavens and it does not rain. And the other one over here in the spirit of Moses, he has the power to turn water into blood and to bring about a bunch of plagues. I'm telling you guys, these are some fierce men of God, and they're hated. They're deeply hated. And the reason they're hated, and I get a little taste of this as I get to preach today in a modern day, they're hated because they hate the message that they're given. And here's the message. You are accountable to God. And if you sin against God and you throw your fist up at Him, He will punish you. He will bring retribution upon your soul. People don't want to hear that. Now, I'm telling you guys, they want to hear God is a big fluffy Santa in the heavenlies. He lets me get away with everything. I never get a spanking. He's just this heavenly sweet papa papa, and everything is grand and glorious. I can live like I want to live. I can sin like I want to sin, and God will wink at it, and everything is a-okay. I'm telling you, friend, that is not the God of the Scriptures. He is a holy God. Listen, He is a God of love. Oh, how the love of God rained down in Christ. Death on the cross, hallelujah, rose from the dead, but He's also a God of justice. Now, think about it. Just extrapolate just a basic human axiom truth from a human judge. If a human judge would allow us to commit murder and rape and crime and we never pay for it, what chaos would there be in this world? God is a judge. He holds accountable and He empowers these two men. And buddy, they preach and the people, you know, they don't like it a whole lot. All right, so that's their ministry. Let's go next to their death in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, they finished their testimony. Come on now. I don't, I don't know about you all, but verse 7, he just greatly encouraged me. Do you know, you, do you, do you know when you're walking with God, you're invincible. 
God will protect you. He will spare you until He's finished with you. I I don't know about y'all, that gives me great peace. That gives me great hope knowing that I'm going to continue in my ministry and I'm going to continue to serve God until God says, you're coming, you're coming home. These men, it says, they finish their testimony, then the beast comes. Doesn't that encourage you just a little bit? That God has His sovereign hands wrapped around your life, and when you're walking with Him, now please don't misunderstand me. Don't be a knucklehead. Don't be a nitwit and walk out in front of a semi and say, it's not my time. You're an idiot, okay? You're going to get, you're just going to get run right over, okay? Don't, don't do that. Or don't step out in front of a, a, a gun and say, I'm invincible by the power of God. Bullets will not hurt me. And God just goes, oh, you knucklehead. You know, you, you got to be walking with Him with saneness and common sense. And I believe as you're doing that, God protects you. He guards you just like He does these two men. Now, here comes the beast. And the beast comes. He is the Antichrist. I mentioned it's the first of 36 references to him. He is a part of the unholy trinity. I'll be preaching on this in the future, but let me go ahead and give you his. By the way, every time God has something just and pure, the devil has a counterpart to it. Every time. The unholy trinity consists of the dragon, which is Satan in Revelation, the beast, which is this guy, the Antichrist, and there's a third guy known as the false prophet. He's also called a beast, but he's a little beast. The little beast will come in the end times, and he will have the whole world fall in love with the beast. He will be his little emissary. He will be the one convincing everybody on earth that, man, look at this guy. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he wonderful? Look at the economy he's blessed us with. Look at the peace he's provided in the Middle East. Nobody could provide peace in the Middle East. But look at this guy. Look, look, he's charismatic. Isn't he good looking? Isn't he amazing? Now let's just everybody, come on now, everybody together, let's just bow down. And that will be that guy's job. And you say, but wait a minute, I I don't know that I want to do that. Then you're going to get killed. You're going to take his mark somehow. You're going to get a mark on you to identify you, to worship him. And the person who's behind it, listen, listen carefully. This is a good word. The person behind it is the one who always wants to be God and be worshiped, and it's Satan. He's empowering the false prophet. He's emboldening the the Antichrist, the beast, and so that's why the scholars refer to them as the unholy trinity, to mock, to resemble Father, Son, and Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. So verse 8, the two witnesses' bodies will lie in the street three and a half days. They're going to be killed. They're going to be martyred. John MacArthur puts it like this. He said, after their deaths, their dead bodies will be contemptuously contemptuously left to lie as rotting corpses in the streets of the great city where they ministered and where they were killed. In the ancient world, exposing an enemy's dead body was the ultimate way of dishonoring and desecrating them. God forbade that the Israelites engaged in that practice according to Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, end of quote. So here they are. They've been martyred, they've been killed. And all of this transpires in the great city known as Sodom and Egypt, better known as Jerusalem. Hold on now, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that Jerusalem is going to fall so precipitously, so far into degradation and sin that in the last days it's going to be actually called Sodom and Egypt? Let me me tell you something, guys. Whenever the Bible calls you Sodom, that is not a compliment. 
because of sodomy, homosexuality, God killed the whole city. You say, well, I wonder what God thinks about homosexuality. That's what He thinks about it. That's, it he, he does not like it. He, it is an abomination to Him, it is unholy, it is unrighteous to Him, and when we engage in that sexual deviancy, God is not pleased with that, okay? And so, when, when the Bible refers to Jerusalem as Sodom, that is not a compliment at all. That is a strong word of rebuke. Now listen, even as I'm preaching this today, it has gotten deathly quiet in here. Because almost people are looking at me like, I don't know that you should be talking like that. But if I don't talk like this, if I don't, if I don't preach what the Bible says, who will? Who will say it? Who, who's going to stand up and say it? Please don't blow up Facebook and Twitter and Instagram on me. The brother Danny said, oh, God hates homosexuals. He doesn't. He loves homosexuals just like he loves fornicators. He loves homosexuals just like he loves thieves. He loves homosexuals just like he loves those who, who commit any kind of sin. He loves the sinner, but he does not like the sin, and because of that, he will punish. You say, but I get that. Sodomy, yeah, that's not cool, but I don't get Egypt. Why would they be referred to as Egyptians? Here's why. Egypt is synonymous with rebellion. Rebellion. Pharaoh's heart hardened, will not let the people go, and so now Jerusalem is at this spiritual, destitute, bankrupt place. You say, well, how do you know it's Jerusalem? Where else was Jesus crucified? It makes it very clear that this is the city from which our Lord died. Okay, so verse 9, the people from all over the world are going to be living in, uh, from all over the world, living in Jerusalem. They're going to see their dead bodies. They're not going to give them a proper burial. And you say, but wait a minute, how, how does that happen? People from all over the world. Listen, this is not a stretch at all. One of two ways you can interpret this. Number one, there are people from all tribes, peoples, tongues, nations living in Jerusalem, or I think it's the other way. When I, uh, 2000 and, goodness, it's eight years ago, whatever, eight minus 15 is. <laughs> what, what would that be? Yeah, something like that. Theology I get, mathematics I don't. Um, actually, that's not right. It was 2002 or three. Anyhow, I'm flying over Mount Kilimanjaro. You ever done that? It's really cool. In a little plane, a four-seater plane, I'm singing every song and spiritual song and hymn that I know to God because I'm about to throw up all over this plane. I mean, I'm bouncing up and down. I'm singing, Lord, please spare me. We're flying into a Sudanese, Sudanese refugee camp. We're doing ministry, and we're helping, and we're blessing, we're trying to. And it's, it's, it's fun. It's crazy. It's, I'm thinking, what am I doing flying in Africa to a Sudanese refugee camp? I said, well, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to preach the gospel, encourage people. We land, and to my absolute amazement, there is this sea of humanity in these tents. Every person I saw had a cell phone. No, a cell phone. And I was blown away. They may not have much to eat, but they were on the phone. I'm like, who are you talking to? You know, I guess they're talking to their neighbor down over here. I don't know. But the point is, with modern technology, it is not a stretch at all to be able to pull that phone out and see CNN and see the martyrdom and resurrection of those two guys right there on your phone. I think that's what's going to happen. CNN, ABC, NBC, they're all going to be there. That's verse, verse 9. 
Verse 10, it says, and those who dwell on the earth are going to be just absolutely thrilled to death. In fact, part of verse 10 says they're going to rejoice, make merry, and send gifts to one another. Now think about it. If you hate somebody that much, and you want them to be silenced, and along comes Mr. Wonderful. (laughs) Reminds me of that crazy Shark Tank guy. But anyhow, Mr. Wonderful. He, uh, he, he, he says, guys, I got this. I have supernatural powers. Watch this. And he kills those two witnesses. And man, they're just like, man, you're great. Thank you. And so they, they, they send gifts. One guy during Christmas put this verse on his Christmas card. Listen, he didn't understand Revelation. He, all he saw was sending gifts and making merry Big mistake. I bet he didn't understand the didn't understand the context. He thought that was a cool thing. Hey, we're giving gifts and it's a great time. Not cool. All right, verse five and six. Uh, we looked at the prophets, how they affected people physically. Now I believe this torment that they preached was spiritually. It was a hard message, not very palatable. So they are they are killed and they are judged and they they just lay them out in the holy city. And it got me to thinking, what is this world coming to? If you preach against sin and you say God is a God of justice, well, I know where this is going. And if I'm around, which I hope I'm not, when this goes down, it's, it's going to be tough on guys like me who are going to preach the Bible. It's already tough. Let, let me give you just a, a little chronology as I, as I kind of wrap this sermon up, this is from a book written by Franklin Graham uh, called The Name. In 1999, in the Columbine massacres, the governor of Colorado called Franklin Graham and said, would you come? We're going to have a memorial service, and, and I want you to pray. Franklin, that's Billy Graham's son, he came and he prayed, and he closed his prayer in the name of, anybody want to guess? Jesus, oh my word. There was a guy that followed him. This is spooky, scary kind of stuff. He followed him and began to scream at him, shout at him and say these three words, you've offended me. You offended me. And this guy was just, I mean, he was just eaten up with fierce anger. And Franklin Graham was looking at the governor. He says, for the life of me, I have no idea who this is or what this guy. And then Franklin Graham goes, wait a minute. I prayed in the name of Jesus. Fast forward 2001, uh, Bush's inauguration. They asked Franklin Graham, would you come and you pray? Him and Pastor Kirby John, they came and they prayed. And Franklin closed this prayer this way. He prayed, and I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, Amen, and the judgment fell. This guy wrote an article, and he quoted in this, and I'm quoting him this morning. He said, he was so angry at Franklin Graham's prayer in Jesus' name. He called it a crushing Christological thud that barred millions of Americans from having their own amen, and he was hated for it. And just this past month, the Duke University the Muslims were allowed, I, I, I just, it's still astounding to me that the administration said the Muslims could have their Islamic call to prayer that would permeate the whole campus. 
And the whole campus at Duke University could hear the Islamic call to prayer. And some believers, some Christians, they were not given the same blessing. And so Franklin Graham raised his hand. He said, wait a minute, that is not right. And Franklin called on Duke University, their graduates and their sponsors, which was a Christian school, believe it or not, started in 1838, and their motto is truth and faith. And he said, why don't y'all withhold your donations because of this is what they're doing. Duke University changed. They changed their thought. They said, whoa, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. Dare I go here. Yes, I'm going there. Just this past week, the same guy gave an eloquent, fierce rebuttal to our president, who equated Islamic jihadists with Christian crusaders who killed people thousands years ago. Let me tell you something, guys. That's just stupid. I'm, I'm just telling you, it is, it is stupid. And as Franklin Graham pointed out, he just does not know his history. Listen, study your history, and you tell me if, if the two uh, uh, compare. Yes, people have done stuff in Jesus' name. I know the David Koresh's of this world. I know the abortion uh, uh, clinic who say they're Christians and they kill the abortion doctors. I get that. But if you, if you try in your mind to compare that to these jihadists, the, these ISIS jihadists, what an incredible stretch. And I thought Franklin Graham was upset until I heard Pastor Robert Jeffers up at First Baptist Dallas. Good night. Whoa, Nellie, bar the door. He was, he was just like, this is absolutely ludicrous. So, so here's my point. How, how popular you think Franklin Graham and Robert Jeffers are today? Not very. There are some who love God, love the Bible, no history, actually no church history, and are taking a stand. And I'm telling you, it is a hatred, and we get to see just a, a precursor of the hatred that will come to these two guys who will be preaching in the end times. And let me wrap up. Uh, point C is their resurrection and ascension. Verse 11 reminds me of Ezekiel 37, where God breathed life, and these dead bodies came back to life, and their enemies saw them. Come on now. I hope CNN records this. Oh, look at there. Those bodies, those desecrated, decimated bodies, they're coming together, there's life in them, and they're rising up from the dead, and they're going to heaven. I'm telling you guys, that's going to be something. And the Bible says that their enemies see it and gave glory to God. Now, let me, let me say something to you real quick. Whenever you read in Revelation where it says, and they gave glory to the God of heaven, that is a reference to repentance. So, some of these guys, they're going to see, they're going to remember the story of the witnesses. They're going to see their death, they're going to see their resurrection and ascension, and they're going to go, wait a minute. And during the Great Tribulation, there will be people converted to Christ. And I believe it's not just giving glory to God going, wow, that's pretty impressive. They're going to, they're going to realize that these two witnesses were of God. And these people are going to believe, and there are going to be people saved during the Great Tribulation. Robert Thomas believes this could be a Jewish revival where many Israelites come to faith in Christ. Verse 14 is an interesting passage, and I want to make sure you understand it before we go. It says, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The sixth trumpet judgment 
was the first woe. Excuse me, the fifth trumpet judgment was the first woe. The sixth trumpet judgment was the second woe. We've already studied those, and that's chapter 9. Chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 is known as an interlude, a pause, a apocalypsis parentheses, if you will. John says, okay, those have passed, the third woe is coming. The third woe is, now watch this, don't, don't be confused. The third woe is the seventh trumpet judgment, and it's coming. Revelation 11, 15 begins the third woe. You say, well, why is that so significant? Why is John making a big deal out of the seventh trumpet? Here's why. The seventh trumpet encompasses the seven bowls. In other words, all of it's about to culminate, all of it's about to come to a, to a crisis, to a culminating point, and the king is about to come. Stephen Hawkins got it wrong. There was a beginning in time, and there will be an end of time as we know it. God who created the world, He holds the world in His hands. He's an awesome, amazing God. He gives us free will, and with that free will, we disgust Him, we hate Him, we spit in His face, and He judges. Those who believe and repent, they are saved, and toward the end of time, you watch this, it's going to happen precisely as Revelation says, God's going to bring it all to a close. The King is going to come in Revelation 19, and Christ will reign on this earth. Wow. Well, that's our, that's our Bible study uh, for today. I want to thank you for coming. I want to thank you for wrapping your mind or, around it with me. And. Um, just, just so you know, I do pray for our president by name every day. I pray for his salvation. I pray for his wife. I pray for their two daughters. I pray for their protection every single day. I pray for their protection. I pray that God gives him wisdom. And like Franklin Graham, I forgot to tell you this part. You, you remember when, uh, I probably shouldn't say this. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, this is public record, so I'll just go ahead and say it. Obama met with Franklin Graham before his first presidency while he was running for the presidency. Uh, that would be, what, six, seven years ago? And uh, a spokesman for the Obama campaign came out, and he was very frustrated. Somebody interviewed him, they said, well, how did he go? How did the meeting with Franklin Graham go with Bar Senator Barack Obama? And the guy said, Ugh. he said all Franklin Graham wanted to do was get the senator saved. He just wanted to get him saved. So, why wouldn't that be awesome? See him get saved. So, let me just tell you, I do, I do pray for him, and I, and I, I just disagree with uh, most of what he stands for. But who, but who am I? I am just a simple gospel preacher. And um, let me say one more thing before I'm done. You said, Brother Danny, you said in closing 15 minutes ago, I told you a story. All right, I told you a little white. No, I'm just kidding. I have had and have homosexual friends, have a relationship with them in the sense of friendship, and I love them and I pray for them. My brother, my blood brother in Alabama, is, his next door neighbors are homosexuals, loves them, has them over for dinner. It, it's, it's not that I am some homophobe that hates homosexual. I don't. 
I mean, in fact, they are welcome to come to Great Hills Baptist Church. I don't know if y'all knew that or not. They are welcome to come to our church and to be here. <clears throat> you say, yeah, but they're not welcome to join. That's right. Uh, just like if you were living with your girlfriend, sir, in a, in, a, in a sexual relationship, you can't join Great Hills Baptist Church. You say, well, why would you do that, you old, fogey, pharisaical, short, little idiot? Why? Why would you say that? Why would you prohibit people? For, listen, the Bible is very clear about the bride of Christ, the church, having this unique dynamic relationship with King Jesus. And it's always portrayed in a husband-wife relationship. So if we allow people to, who, who definitely dis disagree with that, then I have to take out Ephesians 5 and remove it from my Bible. And so I can't do that. So if you come to the new members class, you'll hear me share more about this. You're welcome to come and visit. But in order to join, we would ask you to separate from those relationships. So Father, I thank you for being with us today. I know, Lord, that these two witnesses are some fierce men of God. And Lord, they give me encouragement. They give me hope that, that, Lord, you will always have a witness. You will always have somebody who will share your name and your fame, and you will win. God, you always win. I just pray now for our people, Lord. They would take heart. They would be encouraged to know that, God, as they stand, as they stand for Christ, that, yes, they're going to be persecuted, but, yes, Lord, you will vindicate them. You will bless them. And I just pray for our church. Oh, Jesus, I pray that you would protect us that you would, that God, you would just send the people here to us that, that we can disciple and that we can send them out to be bold witnesses. Father, I pray if there's somebody here today, never, never entered into a relationship with you, that this would be the day. They would say, I believe, I, I believe in Christ. I'm like those in Revelation 11 when I, when I saw the miracle of the ascension. I, I came to my senses this morning. I actually believe that's all true. God is a just God. He is a holy God. And my life is unholy and I need Him. Would you, would you call upon His name? Would you call upon Him now during a day of grace? There's coming a day. There's coming a day. It's like grace sealed up. The King comes and it's too late. Would you believe on His name even now? Would you say, Lord, I believe. I give you my life. I want to serve you. I want to honor you with my life. Others of you here today, and you need a church. Man, everybody needs a church. You need a place to come and belong. And, and if God so leads you, why don't you come? But listen, we want you. We need you to come, to link your life with our life, to be accountable, to be able to say, yes, that is my church, and, and I love my church, and I want to support her in her ministry and her endeavor. So proud of our church yesterday. A room full precious widows, and just watching our deacons and our staff and our people on a Saturday afternoon just loving on widows. You know the Bible smiles on stuff like that. The Bible says that's pure religion undefiled before God the Father, is to visit their orphans and the widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's a lot of cool, neat, amazing things going on in our church. Would you come? Would you be a part of us and help us? Father, we commit our time to you. We commit this time of prayer, this time of calling people to the altar and saying, give your life to Christ. Join our church. Be baptized. Serve the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Who's back there? Is it Jana? Jana's going to lead us.
in a song, a hymn, or a chorus of invitation, why don't you come? Maybe just come and pray, or maybe bring somebody with you and say, hey, I'll go with you as we do business with the Lord today. As you sing.